2: I'm Leo Phillips, host
0: of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
3: Consequence Podcast Network.
1: Discography is brought to you by Reverb LP, a marketplace for used and new music. Vinyl, CDs, tapes, even reel-to-reel. With buyer protection and impeccable selection, if you're looking to complete your discography, there's no better place. Shop for music on the go with the Reverb LP app, available on Android and iOS, or find them online at lp.reverb.com.
0: And welcome to episode three of season three of Discography. I'm your host, Mark with a C. I'm not only a lifelong record geek and not only the host of this here show on the Consequence Podcast Network, but I've also been releasing lo-fi pop records independently for nearly 20 years now. Discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canonical albums of first release material to see who the music says that they really are and how it all stacks up. Discography aims to educate and inform those listeners who really want to know. All opinions are that of the person that said them, because everything is subjective, right? Also, discography can be a pretty personal journey for me, and that's something you should know up front. Let's get on with the show, shall we? Hey, thanks for coming back. Thanks for joining us. Mark with a C here with you. So glad you are here. If you have not joined us before on this season, well... Listen, I'm not going to tell you how to run your life, but I think it would really behoove you to start from episode one of this season, because we started with Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp discovering the band at the Railway Hotel, right? They weren't even the who yet. They were just the high numbers at that very moment. They wanted to manage them to success, film it all the while. Then all of a sudden they become a hit-making pop group, and then... Start breaking stuff. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff we have covered up to the point where we're about to start talking about a massive a massive piece called Quadrophenia But up till now we have covered the albums my generation a quick one The who sellout Tommy live at Leeds who's next we even covered Roger Daltrey's first solo album The first two John Entwistle solo actually three now that I think about it. Yeah, We've already gone through the first three John N. Twistle solo records, solo Pete Townsend record, and uh, spoiler alert, there is some Keith Moon action on the way. Either way, uh, just letting you know where we've been and where we're heading. But we have so much ground to cover that I can't really give you a full recap. We just got to jump right into the action, so no time like the present. Thanks for joining us. Let's get on our bike. Quadrophenia was released by The Who in late 1973, and where can one even begin when talking about this thing? To many, it's The Who's magnum opus, and it would appear that at least Pete and Roger may still share that belief to this day. It's an album fraught with problems from conception, potentially released before anyone was even ready to tie a bow on it, or it even considered how to pull off the gargantuan material on a concert stage. Yet despite these issues, countless people have heard Quadrophenia as a mirror of their own lives, that it's nearly impossible to call it anything less than a perfect triumph. And that's only if you take into account all of the people that claimed that the album saved their lives and ignore anything else in the album's wake so if you'll remember back before the glut of solo albums that we talked about towards the end of episode two just after the touring for who's next had wrapped pete attempted to write the history of the group in a concept album provisionally titled rock is dead long live rock which was abandoned for various reasons and while the initial album was abandoned the concept wasn't totally cast aside Pete felt that he could instead write the personality of each individual member, and if he were to slap their personalities together, it could culminate in a brand new character, a brand new mirror that the audience could hold up to themselves. In short, Pete felt that his role was to, quote, replace Tommy as a stage vehicle. Well, right around this time, Pete would also write a short story about a kid with multiple personalities, which would later end up in the Quadrophenia artwork, and the two converged, the concept was born. Jimmy. Jimmy would have four personalities. Another concept album about a young man going through some trials and tribulations. Oh, sure, that's what it is on the surface. But getting a bit further into the concept as it's presented, Jimmy isn't having a great time at home with his family. He's really into pills. He's torn between two sets of friends that happen to be in rival gangs uh mods and rockers which were two very real factions who were very much at war with each other in the early 60s which is when this album takes place uh the object of his affection may or may not have run off with his best friend his favorite band disappoints him in like this chance encounter which just happens to also be the who and he feels betrayed seeing that his teenage mod idol the ace face had grown up to work in one of the very hotels that they demolished together so in short He's really just a teenager, other than the fact that he can seemingly communicate with the sea, or rather, believes that's what's happening. And that's not a jab at the concept, because Pete had also based his character on around five early Who fans, including the infamous Irish Jack, one of those formative fans that would corner Pete to tell them how much I Can't Explain really meant to those kids. But when you compound the new concept with Kit Lambert's growing inability to beat Pete's cheerleader and Roger's newfound cocksure swagger upon his solo single, giving it all away, reaching the UK top five, which left him able to demand that Lambert and stamp their management would be fired post haste due to financial woes among many other issues. And the fact that they tried to build their own studio to make the album, but the roof kept caving in. It's really a wonder that this record got done at all. But despite those internal tensions and the broken studio and the infighting, the group borrowed Ronnie Lane's mobile studio with a few trusted engineers and got to work on what is absolutely and inarguably the most complex pieces of material that the Who would ever take on. At the time, with very little as a reference point, Quadrophenia must have seemed like a mighty mindfuck. I know that if I would heard that The Who were doing a new rock opera around 1973, I would have expected Echoes of Tommy. You know, kick off with an overture, ease me into the narrative, meet lots of wacky characters along the way. Instead, you've just gotta walk into Quadrophenia and be ready to accept it on its own terms. There won't be much hand-holding. Almost everything is from the voice of Jimmy, who remembers the issues in Drips and Drabs. The ending is intentionally ambiguous to the point of frustration for some, and if you removed the vocals, one couldn't be blamed for thinking that Pete had merely written a love letter to his favorite synthesizers. I mean, most of these super layered and dense uh, like synth worlds were recorded at Pete's home and brought into the studio for the band to overdub, and that's when Pete wasn't taking strolls on the beach just to record ambient noise for the record. Actually, uh, let me take this moment to tell you the following. If you think that Quadrophenia is a grandiose thing for a rugged band like The Who, your head might explode when I remind you that Pete recorded an entire working demo of this album in his home studio, with nearly twice as much material ready to go, and then brought that in for the band to re-record. Meanwhile, the demos were amazing enough that Pete clearly could have just begun his solo career at that very moment, armed solely with his own Quadrophenia demos.
2: I'm the guy in the sky. I high,
0: in fact, Quadrophenia's story is greatly enhanced by a massive 40-or-so-page book that came with most of the initial vinyl pressings, containing such descriptive photography to illuminate the saga that it could almost stand alone away from the songs as its own storytelling device. And Quadrophenia is the home of at least three, at least three, of the band's most enduring classics, those being The Real Me, 515, and Love, Raynor Me. And while it goes without saying that those tracks are all wonderful and smashing in their own right, Quadrophenium more than almost any other Who record benefits from being taken in as a whole rather than a set of songs which just happen to go together. Instead of going track by track on the 81 minute long monolith, instead I'd like to just focus on the individual themes assigned to each band member. Because, I mean, that's what's supposed to really be going on here, right? So let's try it that way. Now, Roger is represented by the song Helpless Dancer, which is a jaunty and kind of stabbing music hall-styled number that seems to be an internal dialogue between a few of Jimmy's personalities. Some slurs are yelled, and the dance, the literal dance, between tough guy and the part of him that is emotionally opening is framed by the welcomed return of John's brass. Oh, one comes- gets to be the Ace Face, the mod that all the other mods aspired to be just like, but who has ultimately ended up working at a hotel, carrying bags. No Carry
2: out. No out, in.
0: Described in Pete's essay as, quote, a bloody lunatic, the song would go on to join the ranks of Boris the Spider and Magic Bus as a constant audience request and a long-running fan favorite. Now, John Entwistle's theme and entry is where these assigned themes can get a bit confusing. So there's a track known as Dr. Jimmy with a hideous and vile depiction of the mental state that our protagonist enters with gin in his system, rape threats and all.
2: You say she's a virgin!
0: Okay, Okay, but listen, hidden in the song Dr. Jimmy is a piece called Is It Me, and that's specifically John's theme. And not only is it supposed to represent John as the romantic, but it also references an entire full song of the same name that was cut from the tracklist at some point. But that can make the non-initiated think that Dr. Jimmy itself is representative of John. And who knows, maybe, maybe that's what Pete made of John at the time, as John reportedly was pitched Quadrophenia's concept and claimed that he went home and wrote the piece using only one song, not understanding why it had to be such a huge ordeal. I'm not sure that he ever played it for Pete or anyone else, really, but I can't imagine that realization could have made relations anything less than, well, at least a little frosty. However, it's Pete's theme song here that is probably the most perplexingly beautiful one. In the essay notes, Pete refers to this side of Jimmy's personality as the beggar and the hypocrite. Meanwhile, the piano-led and string-filled Love, Rain or Me, described by Pete as a prayer to nothing and everything, is so perfectly executed complete with a smashing finale at the last note that one might not notice that the story basically just ends with Jimmy begging for love. But is this begging for mercy upon a death in the ocean? Has Jimmy realized that you need to give love in order to know how to receive it? Is he just sad that he can't get his outfits just right because that seemed to really matter to the mods? Again, this is all purposefully left ambiguous and only those most invested in the narrative rather than the music could balk at such a perfect and epic closer with one of the greatest vocal performances, (laughs) courtesy of Roger Daltrey, in the history of rock and roll music. Okay, okay, there's two other things I want to mention here about Quadrophenia. The first one is that Okay, you know how people talk about how it's a musical Mount Everest, especially for vocalists, but can we all just talk about the fact that there's finally a Who studio record that represents John's bass playing well? I mean, come on, the real me? This is just basically a bass solo that almost seems like they wrote a song around it. finally, for all that's been said about Quadrophenia in its wake, structure, and influence, the one thing that I wish people would mention more often is that even though most of the instruments were tracked separately, the band really, really, really fucking cooks on this album just like they were on a stage. In fact, the entire band somehow put so much effort into their rare times together in the studio that reportedly the enduring radio classic 515 was reportedly finished in the studio without Pete ever even having time or a chance to demo the arrangement. Now sure, some cracks might be appearing. The band invested in a studio that didn't have a functioning control room. Kit Lambert wasn't being an effective springboard or muse for Pete. Keith's drinking and partying is the stuff of legend around this point, and actually it was an oil shortage that had delayed an album that they'd already have to skip mixing into quadraphonic sound exponentially and dangerously, but somehow, this band made 80 minutes of music that, even though America wouldn't have a ton of a frame of reference for the setting, placement, and subject matter, enough teenagers related to Jimmy to send Quadrophenia to number two on the U.S. Billboard charts and sell a few million copies worldwide. Not bad for an album made by a band that had just spent the last year cementing their own individual identities, huh? Ah! Bill Kirbishley had been brought in to manage The Who's business affairs after a tussle with Kit Lambert, and in trying to help keep the group afloat at this time, he booked a monstrous tour on the very day that the stereo mix of Quadrophenia was completed. Pete claims that upon learning this, He'd now only have two weeks to get the band into fighting shape to actually play this thing on the road. Well, he'd tried to bring in a gentleman named Chris Stanton to play keyboards on the road, but when Roger vetoed bringing in even a sideman for concerts, Pete was left with only a few days to make usable backing tapes for the band to play against. And if you can believe it, they only had two days to rehearse with those tapes and one of which was infamously aborted when a potentially very drunk Pete tried to hit Roger over the head with his guitar. Roger knocked him unconscious with one uppercut, and the tour was a disaster from word one. In the first run of UK dates, the band found themselves unwittingly cutting entire songs from the performances. The tapes would constantly malfunction. And of course, remember, this is a lot of music, and the record wasn't always hitting each town by the time the band landed in it, so the audience didn't always get it. Especially in America, where Roger took to narrating the story between almost every song.
2: He's sitting on the beach, and he's looking at the sea, he's looking at the sea
0: the American leg of the tour infamously got off to a slow start. Not because of a ticket sales slump or anything, because at this point The Who was capable of selling out nearly any venue on the planet based on name recognition alone. Nope, it was November of 1973 at the Cow Palace in San Francisco where Keith Moon downed a still undetermined amount of animal tranquilizers before the show. Now, there's footage of all of this out there in the ether, so to speak, so this old legend is pretty easy to confirm. But the story goes that the band began with a few oldies to warm up, but the tempos would often drag a bit. And this was problematic for the quad material, because Keith would be tethered to a click track to keep the band in sync with these tapes, long before this kind of thing was commonplace. And he passed out once after barely completing what was left of the stage version of Quadrophenia, was revived with some shots from an on-call doctor, and he came out for about, I don't know, a third of another song or so, and promptly passed out again as the group ended up just completing the song with no percussion at all. Eventually, Roger, Pete, and John surmised that they could just pick a random drummer from the audience to complete the show to its contracted length.
2: Can anybody play the drums? Can anybody play the drums? I mean, somebody good.
0: Well, it must have become the happiest day of Scott Halpin's life as the lucky fan got to join the group for ragged but functional renditions of Smokestack Lightning and the then unreleased Naked Eye. There were a few concert recordings made by the popular King Biscuit Flower Hour Company of some of the last Quadrophenia gigs, but the band has dissuaded attempts to release them in full quality ever since, though many tracks were released to radio stations and the occasional various artists compilation over the years, but without a proper mix like Live at Leeds, it's a bit harder to tell if the band was actually playing as badly at the time as they themselves would sometimes claim. By May of 1974, when the band played to a crowd estimated as high as 75,000 in numbers of attendance at the Charlton football grounds, Quadrophenia had been whittled down to a whopping four songs. But that gig is of special interest, too, as there's a good amount of professionally shot footage available to represent it, but it's also becoming increasingly clear in the footage just how much booze was starting to creep back in and take its toll on Pete, who'd barely skirted a number of nervous breakdowns from exhaustion by this point. John claimed to be pretty drunk at the gig as well, and Roger famously said that Keith was just a little bit more drunk at that gig than he'd been in
2: 1973.
0: Some downtime occurred after a reportedly disastrous four-night stand at Madison Square Garden in June of 1974, freeing everyone up to get back to their individual pursuits. To the surprise of many WHO fans, the first solo material to appear in this slightly less active run showed up in September of that year in the shape of a solo single by Keith Moon, doing a charmingly naive sounding cover of the Beach Boys classic, Don't Worry Baby. Besides the cavalcade of stars assisting him on the single, like the Beatles' former road manager Mal Evans, John Sebastian, Flo and Eddie, who were freshly out of Zappa's band, this might have been one of Keith's most surprising moves yet. And while he was only gearing up for more, The Who did have a pretty interesting plan to stay in the public eye. Enter the release of Odds and Sods. Robin Hitchcock once wrote a song in which he posits the notion that popular music went a little bit sideways, among many other subjects, in 1974, and it's not hard to see why. All those summer of love drugs weren't as fashionable as, say, cocaine was becoming in the music industry, often being written directly into a band's budget by their label just to help keep the artist in question moving forward during grueling tours, press cycles, and still expecting to receive chart-topping albums at least once per year. Even if the internal politics and power of the Who was shifting around a little unpredictably in 1974, the popularity certainly wasn't in question, and as the burgeoning bootleg market would show to the band, there simply wasn't enough Who music out in the world in the eyes of the diehard fans. Now, the average bootleg the vinyl bootleg at the time, would likely have crummy sound and maybe a Xeroxed flyer pasted to the front of an otherwise blank sleeve. But by the time that unreleased studio recordings started hitting the market and lavishly produced black market releases like Tales from the Who, well that doesn't really count, that was a radio broadcast, but say Who's Zoo, the one where it looks like a box of animal crackers, the group realized that they'd need to fight back a bit much like they'd done when giving live at Leeds, its visual aesthetic. So Keith, Pete, and Roger were pretty overwhelmed with not only their individual pursuits, but also the long gestating film adaptation of Tommy that was finally being produced. So John Entwistle took the spare time to not only beat the boots, so to speak, but to also ensure that there'd be a new Who album for 1974. And that's where Odds and Sods comes in. Now look, I'm completely aware that I'm breaking a cardinal rule of discography by reserving some time to talk about what is ultimately a compilation, but it's a compilation of previously unreleased material, and to a Who fan in 1974, these tracks were freaking mana from heaven and treated as a full-on major new release in the eyes of many. And for this reason, I feel that it's at least worthy to speak of the original 11-song version that was released in October of 74. So remember that EP from 1970 that the group never quite felt that they got right? Well, this album kicks off with John's entry into that pile, the bouncy and frankly straight-up uncharacteristic postcard. We're having a lovely time Wish you were here) It's another one of John's travelogues. The tune would mark the first time that one of John Entwistle's songs would ever grace the A-side of a Who single, and it's followed by another castaway considered for that same maxi-single, at least at one point, the disarmingly charming Now I'm a Farmer.
2: Now I'm a farmer, and I'm digging
0: As a matter of fact, this compilation spends around half of its running time focusing on the more light-hearted and fun side of the Who, something that uh, tended to be overlooked as they became known worldwide for more blustery arena rock fare. Those who might have expected a sequel to something as emotionally heavy as, say, Love Rain or Me would be utterly confounded by, I don't know, Little Billy, for example. And this one actually has a pretty fun backstory. Even though every member of the band had used nicotine and tobacco at some point in their lives, Pete Townsend had written a three minute long commercial for the American Cancer Society about a chubby kid who amasses fortunes and family as those around him die from cancer. And what would be positively bleak in someone else's hand becomes a strangely reassuring and happy tune here somehow. Ditto for the alternate universe song known as Glow Girl, which has a strange bit about reincarnation after a pop art plane crash that shows that Tommy could have begun in a very different way.
2: It's a girl, Mrs.
0: Now listen, of course you know I'm gonna say this, but the real gold here is the pile of outtakes from the Abandoned Lifehouse project. Songs like Too Much of Anything, Put the Money Down, and finally, the long overdue release of the unsung classic, The Who's original version of Pure and Easy. And the album jumps around from the earliest days as the high numbers to latter-day rock classics like Long Live Rock, sort of providing a parallel and alternate history of the band. But I don't think that most Who fans would disagree that one of the things that makes the original Odds & Sods so indispensable is the release of a song called Naked Eye.
2: It all looks fine to the naked eye But it don't really have a life way at all
0: didn't really do encores very often around this time, and on the rare occasions that an audience was able to convince them to play just one more tune, you were most likely to get a rendition of Magic Bus that might be finished by Sunrise, or you were getting the otherwise unreleased Naked Eye, which is a beautiful duet between Pete and Roger, with more tempo changes per capita, this side of anything, this side of Quadrophenia. This song had been whipped into shape almost purely in those encores by the whole band in front of a paying audience. Conceivably, one could argue that Naked Eye was truly as close as Pete would ever get to really realizing his lifehouse method for these reasons, but also it's just a gem. Odds and Sods reached the top ten on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, and it was only upon future reappraisals and reissues full of often faulty bonus tracks that this release seemed to fade into the background and not be taken seriously as, quote, a real album. And the jury's still out on whether or not this record is even still part of the canon discography, but one cannot argue that it's absolutely essential to understanding The Who's development, and that even when it's a little bit silly, pretty much all of it rules. Be proud. Be or now still on the topic of The Who, but kind of off subject, here's one wacky thing you might be interested in. Keith Moon and John Entwistle appeared on a few songs from a star-studded and totally bonkers musical called Flash Fearless vs. The Zorg Women. And John even sang a few songs on the soundtrack, like To The Chop. But despite the involvement of such luminaries like Alice Cooper, Bill Bruford, and Justin Hayward, the incredibly strange project seemed to exist in a limbo state of not really knowing what it was or how to market itself. Though the soundtrack album would hit shelves in 1975, there'd be no further movement on the project for many years to come, which freed John up to finish work on his upcoming solo album. They'll
2: do the snip, we'll have a ball so let's get hip by.
0: By February of 1975, John Entwistle was ready to unleash his newest work, Mad Dog, on an unsuspecting public. This time, he'd bill the album to John Entwistle's Ox, finding a lineup that he really dug that he wanted to play with during the Who's increasingly long breaks between touring activity, which John seemed to thrive on the instant gratification of. It's a little bit like well all three of his prior solo albums kind of thrown into a blender most closely resembling the 50s throwback nature of rigor mortis sets in but okay i'm gonna give it to you straight i have no idea what to make of this thing it's mostly pretty upbeat the warm compression is still a nice factor and it's sequenced fairly well the two major issues i find here are that while these are still certainly style pastiches, not unlike Weird Al might later do when parodying artists without choosing an actual song to rebuild, the chord progressions seem incredibly obvious and dumbed down from John's usual brand of, oh, I wasn't expecting that. And the second issue are the lyrics themselves. I almost feel bad for having brought Weird Owl up at all, because it might give you higher hopes for this material than it actually deserves. Now it's not humorless, but where John was once legendary for making brooding subject matter seem playful, this time around, it's really hard to explain, but it feels like John is trying to make you laugh this time. And while he's wickedly funny in his own right, he's just not a comedian, and despite the snarling, blurry photo of an animal ready to attack you being your first impression for the cover art a few listens to mad dog and it appears to be a foray into straight up novelty music this sounds great on paper sure but it's just becoming sort of diminishing returns now and the ox band that's backing him up they're not bad by any means and they switch styles with ease but they also sound pretty faceless without much specific personality In fact, if John weren't singing lead vocals on seven of the nine tracks on the initial pressings, one couldn't be blamed for never even venturing a guess that the record was made by one of the biggest stars in the rock music world at the time. We open here with I Fall to Pieces, which is absolutely not a cover of the Patsy Cline classic, but rather a very literal depiction of body parts falling off every time a particular lady is near. The melody to the Lovelorn You Can Be So Mean does become a bit of a highlight around a lot of initially bland sounding material, and the highly bluegrass inspired track called Who in the Hell is just, well, flat out unexpected.
2: Who in the hell do you think you are? Telling me what to do. Who in the hell do you
0: think you are? But it's really not nearly as bleak as I'm making it sound, though. Uh, The track Cell Number 7 is a perfectly fine rock and roller which documents a night spent in a Montreal jail after most of the Who and their road crew took their legendary hotel destruction a bit too far, smearing blood all over the walls and using furniture as battering rams to knock doors and walls down. And it might not have made a bad Who song, really. I have to say that the catchiest tune here is the heavily Phil Spector-inspired title track, a tribute to the my boyfriend's back so you'd better run type of early 60s girl group sounds, and a group of ladies coo into your ear about how their boyfriend just got out of jail and is literally a mad dog and if you see him you should likely kill him. John's voice appears nowhere audibly on the track, yet it was catchy enough to be earmarked as the main single to promote the album, and you just can't make this stuff up. Unfortunately, one of the best tunes here is an instrumental with such an offensive name that you just couldn't pay me to speak it out loud. But it's a mixture of tribal beat, some super funky bass, and a completely unexpected string section, which is a huge jolt in the middle of an already really bizarre second half of this record. When John does sing, his previously smooth-as-butter voice with an exaggerated ability for high notes seems to have been reduced to more of a gravelly shout by now. But somehow, every single element of this confounding album comes together in the closing song, Drowning. smooth as butter voice it's back the strings are back too the lyrics frame a love song with reminders of how hard it is to write one without sinking into cliche and john's voice soars over several key changes and though it might be overblown by nearly any other measure it's actually the saving grace of the mad dog album because it kind of makes an excuse for anything else to exist together all on the same platter now it just makes sense but you have to get to the end And John would take this band on the road, but the expenses would leave him in debt to the tune of six figures, which is a real shame. Now, thanks to a King Biscuit Flower Hour recording of one Ox Show from March of 1975, shows that this lineup absolutely cooked on stage. Unfortunately, no matter how much the band cooked on stage, it wouldn't be enough to save this short-lived side project and their sole album from obscurity. John wouldn't make any moves without The Who for a number of years to come as a result. Mad Dog is not unenjoyable, but taken on its own, it's an absolutely confounding entry into the saga of the musical history of the members of The Who. And things, <laughs> listen, let's be straight about this, things are only going to get weirder for a little while.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome.
0: Hello. Okay, okay, so remember what I was saying about the prevalence of, um, studio-enhancing drugs? What if I told you that Keith Moon's first and only solo record contained contributions from a lineup like Ringo Starr, Joe Walsh, John Lennon, Mark Volman, Howard Kalin, Mal Evans, Harry Nilsson, and somehow still wasn't highly regarded by pretty much anyone, let alone a very well-known thing? Taking a look at the credits, realizing that Keith only plays a bit of drums on maybe three tracks, while remaining the lead singer for the entirety of the album, should be your first clue that something is a little bit off, but here's the thing, it's not actually bad. Instead, it sounds precisely like what it is. A bunch of famous people having some fun with music together, keeping a nonstop party brewing in Burbank, California with a very naive sounding vocalist and, potentially even stranger, the first album that comes to mind for me to even compare this thing to musically is actually John Antwistle's Mad Dog. And Keith and John were always incredibly close so it makes sense that they'd both be interested in some throwbacks to early rock and roll right around the same time. Now of course, with all that said, if a label like MCA Records had received this exact same album from a bunch of no-names in March of 1975, I can tell you with supreme confidence that it wouldn't have even been considered worthy of a rejection letter. The album's called Two Sides of the Moon, and Two Sides of the Moon plays back like the way you… the way that you might remember your drunken night out but it becomes increasingly clear upon further thought just how off the rails the night had really gone. So you got a different version of the previously released Beach Boys cover Don't Worry Baby appearing here, along with a slower take on that single's B-side, Teenage Idol.
2: I travel around, down to town I a be just a boy.
0: But no matter how you slice it, it's going to remain a completely nonsensical piece of 70s minutia. I mean, unless you can come up with a good reason for Keith covering his own bands, The Kids Are Alright.
2: I don't mind other guys dancing with my girl.
0: sure it's confusing for me to waffle like this on the record. One minute I'm saying it's not that bad, the next I'm saying the label wouldn't have released it unless it were made by people who were already superstars. I can't really imagine anyone else not having this reaction, because sometimes Keith's fragility actually works in a really endearing way, as he warbles his way through one particularly poignant Beatles classic.
2: can recall, some are dead, and some are living in my life i've loved them
0: all. keith probably also could have pulled off a pretty good sad sack country record if that's the path he'd chosen to follow as evidenced by the song here called one night stand
2: one night stand city lights are and the girls are
0: Ultimately, Two Sides of the Moon is the very definition of a blip on the radar. It makes sense on paper if you're familiar with who was partying in Hollywood together at the time, but to actually hear it in full absolutely raises more questions than it answers. And Weirdly, with a bit more focus, Two Sides of the Moon might have been better regarded. Mostly it's hard to fathom a Keith Moon record without his blinding drumming, and with an almost complete absence of his trademark humor. But here it is, and it probably made some kind of world record for fastest entry into the cutout bins. Though again, there was enough promise that they actually did begin work on a follow-up album, but that was very quickly abandoned.
2: Beware, 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 I'll be man.
0: And if you're the type to wrinkle your nose up at this kind of golden throats meets celebrity vanity album, Kind of thing, just remember that the session outtakes proved that this could have gone much, much worse. Speaking of blips on the radar, March of 1975 saw the release of Ken Russell's film adaptation of Tommy, and I'm just, yeah, listen, I'm not going to dwell on that. Instead, we're going to move right along to the next project from 1975, which is, okay, hang on, sorry, it's my boss, Cat Blackard, I have to take this. Hello? No, no, I'm not covering it. Well, again, this is discography, not filmography, so that's really, no, I don't care how many new Pete Townsend compositions are on the soundtrack. This freaking thing is, you shut up. Okay, fucking fine. If you want to talk about it, you'll have to come in here and host the damn show yourself because I'm not about to give this thing more attention than it deserves, and frankly, I'm getting a little sick of you pushing me towards, hey, wait, what are you, So what you do is you get a white room. You get a
3: bottle of champagne, you turn the TV on real loud, and you throw that champagne directly into the television. And it'll start sparking and then eventually foaming and then barfing up beans and chocolate. And what you wanna do is you wanna rub it all over you. And that is the experience of watching Tommy. And that is a scene that occurs in the Ken Russell film, Tommy. For no reason, none, except that it's genius. How do I know it's genius? Because, In my short life, I've never seen anything else like it. Now, is it good? Oh, I didn't say it was good. I just said that it's a motion picture spectacle, the likes of which that, you know, you gotta find yourself with a Jean-Luc Godard or a Jordowski to get this kind of stuff, but no, it didn't come from any of those foreign fellas. It came from a Brit named Ken Russell, who, you know, he did Altered State, that movie that drastically confuses the experience of uh, sensory deprivation tanks, and he also did the film Gothic, you know, a creative interpretation of how Mary Shelley came up with Frankenstein. It's got a pretty dope Thomas Dolby score that was formerly the score to Howard the Duck. You know, that movie. You've seen it. We've all seen it. Who hasn't seen Listomania, which starred Roger Daltrey? How could I forget. So, yeah, you know, Tommy, the film, yeah, of course, it made a bunch of money, and yes, okay, yeah, sure, it completely undermines the plot and consistency and emotional impact and resonance and and basically everything to do with the reason that the album is successful in a landmark in pop culture. Sure, yeah, it completely undermines that, but Have you ever seen anything like it before? I mean, Elton John, always spectacular, always fun to behold, but you've never seen him with stilts and giant shoes. You've never seen Tina Turner imprison Roger Daltrey in some kind of Iron Maiden drug vampire machine (laughs) that turns him into a plastic skeleton covered in snakes. You've never seen that before. Spoilers! (sighs) <sighs> what can I say, Mark? The film Tommy, boy, it potentially wreaked havoc on everyone's public perception of the Who if they never bothered to pick up a record, and even if they had ever so casually picked up this platinum-selling album, they would still have their minds poisoned by this complete undermining of absolutely everything that worked about the record. Yes, Tommy is in a hang glider, and yes, Uncle Ernie doesn't kind of fiddle about uh, in sort of a molestery way so much as he just is like a joke shop man that's been put in a blender it's a completely different experience it's hot garbage but it's fascinating hot garbage you know what dogs dogs eat garbage you know why dogs eat garbage mark why because the sense of taste that they have is so far beyond ours it's like a symphony to them they can see so much with the visceral experience of eating that garbage and Mark, I just don't think our human eyes or maybe even our human minds are prepared for what Ken Russell created with Tommy.
0: Can I move on yet? You have my permission. Thank you. Okay, well, I guess I'll also mention that the movie grossed over $30 million at the box office and The Who does appear on bits of the film's soundtrack with a few drum parts being offered by Kenny Jones from The Faces, but hey... It made Roger end with straight-up, pin-up heartthrob in March of 1975, so it's only fitting that we move on to Roger Daltrey's second solo album, Ride a Rock Horse, which hit record store shelves in summer of 1975. Even if you've never heard it, there's no chance you haven't seen the cover. It's the stunningly well-built Roger as a rampant centaur, and that's every bit as comforting as it sounds. And frankly, though it pains me to say it, not only is the album cover the most memorable thing here. I think I actually prefer Keith's solo album to this one. And Keith's album can basically just be a view of Keith Moon's hairy butt, so that's just saying something really. Come on, love I assure you that the brevity with which I'm approaching Ride a Rock Horse is not due to laziness, a lack of care, or even my own personal feelings toward the music contained within. It's just that basically what you've heard in that sample, that's kind of all you've got here. Some songs that can be funk, soul, and even gospel tinged but with Roger bellowing over the top in a way that doesn't really come together with whatever's happening musically Oceans away Go where you may But love will be with you Oceans away Now fluffy stuff like Oceans Away might have actually seemed like a pretty smart move to release at the time. I mean thanks to the Tommy film, people in suburbs that might have previously found Who music to be too aggressive, well these kinds of songs might be right up their alley. With that said, no matter how much sap gets dripped all over these types of ballads, a good song is a good song, and Ride a Rock Horse doesn't have a ton that even reaches the heights of being memorable. Okay, wait, if I'm being fair, I do remember the sort of vaudeville-sounding milk train with Roger doing an exaggerated accent that I just don't get. I've got the fortitude to admit when I'm beat, and despite my very best efforts, I just don't understand what the heck is going on with Ryder Rock Horse. On the milk
2: train,
0: before I am, i be saved. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna complain about there being a lyrical reference to 515 from Quadrophenia there I mean, that's pretty neat and does kind of tie some stuff together Russ Ballard helped Roger to make an album that would likely Alienate most longtime fans with such a soft rock disposition And as there's not a lot of documentation out there about this album It's aim or even a bunch of people who even seem to carry opinions on it For this reason, I think I get what the aim is, but the fact that I've played this album five times in a row and still can't come up with much to share with you about it should say quite a bit. I wonder how Roger feels about these albums now, because this one just sort of starts, trundles along confusingly for about 35 minutes, and then ends without much impression left behind at all, beyond some pretty surprising and rather out of place screams. Having to keep up with an image is hard enough, but there was just no way any content was going to live up to this cover art.
2: So near, so near, to surrender, your futures, your futures are.
0: Let's go ahead and move on to The Who's 1975 album that followed that. It's called The Who by Numbers. And after such a long period of separate activities, when the members of The Who finally just got into a room to play directionlessly, freed from concepts, concerts, and contracts, word on the street is that they not only found themselves playing better than they had in years, but that it might also just be more fun this way. At the time, the band didn't seem to enjoy taking their show on the road without at least something relatively new to say, so there'd have to be a new record, right? The trouble was that though Pete was still seen as the main writer for the band, he'd been spread pretty thin with the Quadrophenia debacle, the ensuing tours, the supervision of the soundtrack to the controversial Tommy film, as well as pioneering the Quintiphonic sound system, which was a precursor to 5.1 to even properly play the Tommy movie in theaters. And, well, frankly, Pete found himself at the bottom of a bottle of brandy and a few other substances, having found the joys of amyl nitrate poppers just before beginning quadrophenia. Pete wasn't a teetotaler anymore, and it would seem that his substance abuse started as a coping mechanism rather than one just designed to, you know, party, right? So by October of 1975, the Who Buy numbers appeared on record store shelves on either MCA or Polydor Records, depending on which country you lived in. And such was the mess between the group and their former managers that they refused to release the album on their very own track imprint, assumedly still being run by at least Chris Stamp. This time around, there'd be no intentional concept, no backbreaking labor meant to redefine what rock music should or could be. This time it was to be a band rallying around their main songwriter and bringing Who's Next producer Glenn Johns back into the fold to make an accurate portrait of who the Who really were in 1975. In that regard, The Who by numbers is one of the most painfully accurate portrayals of the realities faced by an aging rock group, or at least that's how Pete saw them at the time. But once you really think it through, this album might actually be all that the aborted Rock is Dead long live rock album could have been, a non-linear history of The Who up until that point. For example, remember that tale of John Entwistle reportedly writing a song that boiled the entirety of Quadrophenia down to a single song? Well, that's kind of what he does here in the song called Success Story. There's tons of jabs at Pete for the spirituality that had permeated through so many Who lyrics at the time. well as self-deprecating reminders of who they once were and the then-current pin-up status of a few especially good-looking members. I my job
2: to a I smash my
0: Not to mention a very blunt line about John's current level of happiness with his band at all.
2: Back in the studio To make our latest number one Take 276 You know this used to be fun
0: But musically, success story is a tour de force of john entwistle's ability to completely overtake a track with varying bass tones that'll give your ears quite the workout to try to tell them apart from heavy and girthy electric guitar lines and john's ire is worth pointing out up front too roger and pete had been bashing each other in the press and often it seemed that pete would write about those very things and then hand them to roger to have to sing them. And that's the kind of thing that would break a lesser band up, but it's the kind of tension that makes songs like How Many Friends so unbelievably fascinating and kind of relatable, really. That's basically what you've got here. Musically, the band is firing on all cylinders. I mean, beyond all cylinders, really. And one listen to the album closing in a hand or face will set you right about that. And they're hitting their marks so well that I basically didn't even notice until doing the research for this season that the song in question actually opens with what's more or less a more fleshed out version of the chords to the B-side, Wasp Man. But lyrically, Pete is all about cautionary tales, his own mortality, and seeming to be absolutely sick of, well, just being the entity that is Pete Townsend. It's even honest and upfront about fears of impotence in the thrilling and surprisingly melodic Dreaming from the Waste which as an aside look the song utterly rules but have you ever heard the workout that this song becomes on stage? I mean seriously dig a bit of this outro this was them playing it on stage in Swansea. He wasn't totally lighting Roger's fire. Pete would bring in a song like However Much I Booze, admitting that he battles imposter syndrome when seeing himself on TV, which leads to numbing his mind and body with alcohol, and Roger just flat out refused to sing it. Maybe he was concerned that a bunch of teenagers would mistake Mr. Daltrey as the booze hound in the song, but well, that's just flawed logic, because few mistook Raj for, say, a farmer, after odds and sods came out, but I'm sure he had his reasons. Instead, having the song sung by the author, who very much felt backed into a corner, multiplies the emotional resonance exponentially. Hearing his voice waver as he sees the setting sun, much like the closing of a door to a prison cell. I
2: just
0: Roger instead would find sort of a sweet spot for himself in more dramatic fare like the piano-led and kind of -of out-of-character song known as Imagine a Man, which isn't the furthest cry from some of the ballads from his debut solo album. Pete just seems to be better about knowing exactly which tones will be the yin to Roger's yarling yang. But the most out-of-place song here is also the most recognizable, a song led by banjos, ukuleles, and a completely buried accordion. The song is... Squeezebox. It's a throwback to the playful and bordering on novelty tunes the band would slip into their repertoire occasionally. Basically a big long joke about your mom masturbating. But it's catchy as sin, and really, is there any other drummer that can make this kind of subject matter rock? a song called Slip Kid which is certainly a fan favorite and a constant request like many of the novelty songs but there's nothing funnier even remotely fun to be found here. Pete might have been writing some words about how rock and roll had the potential to hurt the aspiring kids that were no doubt waiting around the corner to take the band's crown but really it's also quite in line with some of the singles from around the Who's next period. Your Baba O'Reilly's, your Let's See Action, your Won't Get Fooled Again. The song must have seemed like a surefire smash for rock radio at the time, but in truth, despite being released as a single, the tune mostly sank without a trace. The group also found the song clunky to do live, finding it harder and harder to sync up against the increasing numbers of their songs that needed a backing track to be done on stage. As a matter of fact, only around four numbers from this album would ever turn up in an official Who performance, and only Box" seemed to appear with much regularity after the initial promotional cycle. One couldn't be blamed for thinking that these songs just remind the band of an especially painful period that they'd just prefer to maybe not revisit. However, I would be absolutely remiss if I did not mention the song here that is all at once one of the least characteristic songs to ever grace a Who album, while also being potentially one of the greatest songs the band would ever officially release. Yes, friends, I'm talking about Blue, Red, and Gray.
2: Some people have to have the-
0: Producer Glenn Johns picked this song out of a stack of demos that Pete had brought in from this period, claiming that there wouldn't be much to actually choose from as he'd been fighting writer's block. But in actuality, the song's more of a universal prayer to nothing and everything than most of even Pete's most overtly and obviously spiritual music. It only takes Pete's voice and ukulele to be framed by some tasteful brass from John to rattle even the toughest of the tough guys. Understandably, there was a bit of trepidation in sequencing the album, and frustration grew when no one could find a way to pace the album to anyone's satisfaction. I mean, there might be a lot of thematic links, but musically it is a little bit all over the place. Thankfully, John Entwistle saved the day, and while the track flow may now seem obvious, if you, say, first heard this album via the old MCA cassette, You know that if you move just one component of this album around, you end up with a completely different experience and really a sadder one, but The Who by Numbers is a lot of things. It's one of Keith's finest hours as the heartbeat of The Who. It's an album wherein one can argue that at this point, pianist Nikki Hopkins should just be considered the band's unofficial fifth member for designing so much of the glue that would help this album flow. It's even a game of connect the dots with some artwork John Entwistle designs, so hey, it'll even give your kids something to do on airplanes if you've just got the cover and a pencil near you. What it isn't is in the same league as Tommy, Who's Next, Light at Leeds, and Quadrophenia because the world just decided that's how it was going to be. It's unfortunate because on many levels this album is every bit the equal of everything that I just mentioned, it's just not as well known since FM radio didn't shove it down our throats. For this reason, it's not just underrated, I'll go as far as calling it a Latter Day Who masterpiece. There's not really a hair out of place, and no matter what you like best about the Who, there's at least an element of it on display here. It's fun, it's rockin', it's beautiful, it'll break your heart into a billion little smithereens if you hear it at the wrong time. Reaching the top 10 on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, The Who by Numbers isn't marketed as a concept album, but it's arguably The Who taking themselves on and somehow coming out of the other side as victors. Some have called it Pete Townsend's suicide note, but to these ears, it sounds like a Dear John letter to thinking and living like a rock star. And though the album didn't really light the world on fire, it framed the final tour undertaken by the original lineup. We're not quite done with this episode of discography yet, but I wanted to jump in and thank you so much for listening because listen, we're recording this in late 2018 and I don't really know anybody who's not losing their damn minds right now because things are very tough all over. Um, I'm not immune to it either. This was recorded in one of the hardest periods of my adult life myself and I'm just pushing really hard to make it through. So thank you for bearing with us thank you I know that there was a long gap or it felt like a long gap between seasons I'd like to tell you that's not gonna happen again but you'll just have to stay tuned for that regardless we're all having a hard time we're all kind of losing our minds right now so thank you very very much you could be spending your leisure time doing anything else but you are here with us deep 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 into episode three of season three of discography. We appreciate you so much. If you want to help discography out, a really cool thing that you can do is go to iTunes and rate and review us. But really, anywhere that you found this podcast, rating and reviewing us helps us get into more ears because that's just how algorithms are working for podcasts nowadays. Also, Consequence Podcast Network offers up a lot of really cool programming, like Losers Club, which is an all Stephen King podcast. Halloweenies, which is exactly what it sounds like. Halloween Hot Dogs. No, I'm just kidding. It's all about the Halloween movie series. And, of course, there's State of the Empire, the Lucasfilm podcast. There's This Must Be the Gig. There's... Oh, my gosh. I'm so lucky to be on this network. It is so cool that I'm on this network. And if you want to hang out with us on social media, some places you can do it are facebook.com slash discographyoncpn or you could just search discography on facebook and uh, you know best of luck to you because there's a lot of words and facebook has a, just left a lot of pages up that don't yeah you know what i mean come on facebook come on what are you doing now of course discography is not all that i do but if you want to check out the other stuff that i'm up to First of all, markwithac.com, you can hear a lot of the music that I've made. I've been releasing records for nearly 20 years. They're lo-fi, independent pop records. I uh, often describe it as if you're under the age of 40, it's sarcastic indie rock. And if you're over the age of 40, it's just brand new classic rock. And if you're right around the age of 40, I don't know what to tell you because I haven't figured out how to market to my own demographic either. If you wanna hear some of it, com. There's also a place where you can buy records and compact disc. on that page. You just click on get tangible stuff and you can get some physical media. If you wanna to listen to me, oh man, Spotify lately has been treating me really well. They even made like this playlist where they're like, here's what we think are your best songs. And I was like, what's going on, Spotify? So, yes, you can just look me up on Spotify if you'd like, but if you want to hook up with me directly, facebook.com slash music. And the easiest place, really, for me to have some back and forth with you is on Twitter. I'm at markfi on Twitter. That's M-A-R-C-F-I. As in, there's hi-fi, mid-fi, low-fi, and markfi. Now, as one can imagine, just making independent pop records and podcasting doesn't pay all the bills, and it means that... There's nobody pulling my strings to make sure I do things a certain way. That's really cool because it means that I get to keep artistic integrity, but it also means that I'm broke as hell. So if you would like to help me make future creations, patreon.com slash a C. That's where you want to go. I will absolutely happily take your money, but I will give you things in return. Really cool stuff. And I've been really transparent about where that money is going. Right now, we're saving up to release a book and a best of for my 20th anniversary now those things are going to happen anyways but the more folks that support patreon.com slash mark with a c the quicker i can get it done and maybe even on time because it is a lot of hard work and hey i think it's worth it hey what's the book you might ask well you know people at my little low tier level but they've got kind of a cult following nobody ever tells our stories until we're dead So maybe I can write the first book where I kind of chronicle it so you can see what looks like the end of the world to musicians at my level, though to you it might seem like, geez, you know, I dig ditches for a living. Could you stop whining? I'm going to go ahead and get back to the show now. These are some links that matter. Let's get back to it.
1: Hey, this is Cap, CPN Network Director. Mark and I bond over a lot of things, but most of all, music. We both obsess over it together and dive deep into nuanced collections of rare records to get that bigger picture. You probably know how it is. One day you realize that a bunch of your favorite records all have the same producer or session musician, and the next thing you know you're on a wild goose chase for rare records hunting down more of those sweet sounds. Or say there's a band you love, like The Who. With an expansive catalog, different mixes of the same track, critical bootlegs. That's why I'm so excited that this season of discography is sponsored by Reverb LP. You might know Reverb as an incredible music gear resale marketplace. Well, Reverb LP is their marketplace for used and new music. Buy records, sell your records so you can have money to buy other records. They have an impeccable selection, which you can scope out online or even better via their app, which is available on Android and iOS. In fact, if you're looking to start your Who collection or fill in some gaps, we've got a virtual bin for you to flip through. Just go to lp.reverb.com handpicked discography, and you'll see all the records discussed in this season. Reverb LP offers buyer protection so you won't ever have to worry about a bum deal. And say you're hunting down an unofficial release, rare tracks, bootlegs, you'll find them here. As far as I'm concerned, and this is me speaking like 100% personally, Reverb LP is the marketplace for record collectors. Download the app, scope out the store, or browse this season's discography at lp.reverb.com handpicked slash discography. And now, back to Mark.
0: When the Who took to the road to promote Who By Numbers, by all accounts, the group was mostly on top of their game and only got stronger with each passing date. Despite trying new songs and dropping them really quickly, the set list became what Pete always seemed to fear most. A greatest hit show. A cabaret act to crib from Pete's own verbiage. That said, if you watch through the footage that circulates thanks to a few of the bigger shows utilizing big screen projectors so that those in the balcony might have a shot at even seeing the stage, The American leg starts off solid in Houston, explosive by Michigan, and flat out unbelievable by their date in Cleveland in December of 1975. But if there was ever a time to return to some oldies, this was it. Many audience members had no doubt first heard about the group from Ken Russell's film called Tommy, and this would be the first chance for the band to play many of those numbers for the new fans. The Who tours of 1975 and 1976 were a great exercise in giving the fans all that they could claim to want, but they also gave Keith something to do, as the other band members had noticed that Keith wasn't playing or rehearsing in their time off. Keeping him on the road was the only way they can ensure his safety for two hours a night, most likely. Despite the band staying on the road for nearly two years, with all of the expected debauchery following them at every turn, Pete still found time to put out another compilation in tribute to Mehir Baba, this time called With Love. Many of the usual suspects would appear again with the addition of Peter Hope Evans, Ronnie Wood, and Peter Banks, actually from the first lineup of Yes. Much of Pete's material here harkened back to the sounds we heard on the *Who Came First album, but at times, it'd be home to some of the most beautiful melodies and sentiments that Pete would ever commit to tape, especially the unsung classic *Sleeping Dog*.
2: And all I can do is love you, provide you with some fun and food. All I can do is love you, and that is what I
0: With The Who's touring activity continuing well into 1976, notable moments included a return to the Charlton football grounds which landed the band in the Guinness Book of Worlds Records as the loudest band of all time with a volume that was reportedly at least 120 decibel and that's 50 meters away from the stage. Also notable is the band's performance in Swansea just a few weeks later, as they'd seemingly recorded this gig to occasionally farm tracks out to radio stations and compilations, but it's another incendiary gig that has sat unreleased for far too long, and perhaps the saddest moment of all comes from their stop in Toronto in 1976, as that would be the last time that the original lineup would play together in front of a paying audience, though none of them knew that at the time. After Daltrey unleashed his third solo album, One of the Boys, in May of 1977, it might have looked like everyone in The Who's camp was taking a big long sabbatical after some grueling road work, but actually, many wheels were turning. Not only were The Who putting together two movies that were in various stages of production, but everyone was either working towards that film production, their own albums, or their own film appearances. So on one hand, it looks like a period of inactivity, which is always a good time to release something just to remind the world that you exist, but on a completely different hand, Roger's last foray into the solo arena had yielded mixed artistic results and next-to-no-chart success. So what's going on with this album called One of the Boys? I couldn't tell you. I mean, look, out of the first three of Roger's LPs, this one's easily the best, the most varied, and the most immediately enjoyable for me, but that's only when comparing them against each other. As something that would stack up against a major Who release though, it ain't bad. It's not going to change anyone's life Tommy style, but it's still a perfectly fine soft rock album for 1977 that occasionally dips into slightly different musical territory than you might expect based solely on context. Oh, and it just happens to be one of the most star-studded records the guy could have done at the time. Someone, somewhere, must have been absolutely damned and determined that one of the boys was going to make Roger as a standalone artist. Not only will you find both John and Twistle on, but not limited to the title track and a song called Avenging Annie, but Keith Moon offers up some drumming on Say It Ain't So, Joe. Oh, and Jimmy McCulloch from Wings is here? and Rod Argent of The Zombies, and Alvin Lee from 10 Years After, and Mick Ronson from The Spiders from Mars, and friggin' Eric Clapton. Hell, Paul McCartney even wrote a song for the album, and that wasn't even the single. On a purely liner note level, one of the boys must have looked like one of the most promising albums of 1977, and maybe even the decade as a whole. You've got the most cracking writers and musicians putting together some music for one of the premier arena rock vocalists to interpret. And the cover is a pretty smart reference to a piece of art by Magritte. This thing must have been a massive success, right? Not so fast. I mean, it did crack the top 50 on both sides of the Atlantic, yes, but we all know that sales aren't everything, so I'll say it this way. You know how, even if you're a diehard Who fan, you've always met that one person at the party that won't shut up about trying to convert you to the Who? Maybe they want to tell you how Quadrophenia changed their lives or something, or maybe they want to tell you how one particular performance of See Me, Feel Me gave them such an amazing spiritual experience that they levitated out of their own bodies and eventually started following Mehir Baba? I don't know. I mean, you've met hardcore Who fans. We're like that one white guy at the party who won't shut up upon learning that you've never seen The Wire, right? Now that I've pointed that out to you, I'll ask you to think back to how many diehard broken glass Who fanatics have gushed to you endlessly about one of the boys. Uh, Go ahead. I'll wait. I've got a fidget cube while you think of your answer. Okay, got your answer ready? Here's a hint. If your answer is one or more Who Fanatics have gushed to you about Roger's One of the Boys, I'd like to welcome you home from your visit from the magical land of shit that never happened and I hope you'll be enjoying the rest of your stay here at Discography. But hey, don't let me dissuade you. It really is a perfectly fine album. And I wasn't kidding that it really does leave Roger's first two solo albums completely in the dust, but it's ultimately just kind of plain.
2: Could exist still, 'cause there's a sign up on the hill. We buy the masks, I make the tours to touch the world. Of
0: the record opens with a very pretty and very of its time tune called. Parade, which is a pretty good metaphor for what's happening here. It's mostly from the perspective of a person who's telling you stories about Hollywood, but also taking great pains to make it clear that they never quite made it into the upper crust, but they were around. And that's a good way to understand one of the boys, too. It doesn't take a hardline stance on anything. It dabbles in a few genres and with a few ideas, but it's light entertainment by design and nothing else. There's an honest-to-goodness country song here called Single Man's Dilemma, which is, again, pretty simple. Barfly wants to take a lady home, and then he does. And the song is over. It's catchy, it's pleasant, but it's also light enough to miss unless you're really paying attention. Now the track Avenging Annie is one of the more popular tunes here, with a burbling piano line underneath provided by Mr. Argin, and one pass the chorus on this one, and it could almost pass for a Who out take. Well, now before I go much further, let me make this perfectly clear. I do not think One of the Boys is a bad record on any level, but as Roger is such a good interpreter for Pete's songs, and Roger seems like the kind of cat who will just drop a song on you and expect you to take it or leave it on its own merits, I'm not sure what his aims even are with these. And listen, I have really no inside information on this stuff, especially Roger's solo albums. They're pretty much the least documented parts of the Who canon. And since I don't know any better, all I do when I listen to these is I I keep trying to come around to what Roger must have been trying to do. And all I've got, and and I understand that I am completely reaching here and that I am probably 1000% wrong, but here you are, the whole world is looking at you. You're a movie star, you're the singer of one of the biggest groups in the world. But it's also really clear that Roger's trying to find himself on these records, that's what I get out of it. I could be wrong, probably am, but I hear a lot of soul searching. Unfortunately, Roger recorded all of that soul searching. Much later on when promoting a 90s album that we'll talk about later called Rocks in the Head, Roger said to Howard Stern that Rocks in the Head was the first of his own albums that he actually wanted to make. And there wasn't much else context given, and as a guy that thinks the only excuse that you need to make a record is just, well, wanting to make a record, I literally can't come up with a single reason why this album exists, or also shouldn't exist. Or who could have twisted Roger's arm to make him do some tunes he didn't actually want to sing? If he means it in retrospect, that he doesn't think highly of these upon reflection, man, I wish he'd just own that. I mean, by the time this airs, Roger's biography, his autobiography, will have come out, and for all I know, a lot of what I'm mentioning will already have been answered. But as of right now, I'm recording this in October of 2018, and I do not know these answers. And since he's not really owning anything, there's not really a lot of talk about these solo albums that exist right now, this just makes my job stupidly hard. I've gotta talk about albums you claim to not want to make. Okay, I can see one or two made out of contractual obligation, maybe. But we aren't even a third of the way through Roger's solo output, so you're gonna have to pardon me while I think ahead to wonder how we ended up here. The title track's pretty rockin' though. He speaks with a
2: terrible stammer, so he don't have much to say, but he can spit better than any punk, so nobody gets in his
0: way. And actually, just like in the song Avenging Annie, John Entwistle shows back up to do his gravelly Boris the Spider voice. It's neat and all, but it mostly serves to make me wonder why I'm not listening to The Who, because... Okay... The first verse, written by Steve Gibbons... Like, this song mostly exists to remind you that Roger was the guy who sang My Generation. So, I got excited about the song called Giddy, finding out that it's written by Sir Paul McCartney, and let's face it, Paul, or whichever actor's playing him at the time, Paul knows his way around the tune, and Giddy is okay, but just doesn't seem to fit Roger or even this album, though compositionally it's the most interesting song here by a country mile. Heck, maybe even in an entire country. I think I'm being pretty unfair to Giddy. I, I think Giddy's actually a pretty rad song overall, and the singles written on the wind and Say It Ain't So, the latter of which was written by Murray Head of One Night in Bangkok fame, they're pretty par for the course for well mid-70s Roger Daltrey solo singles. Kinda folksy, kinda sappy, but if I were the type to gamble, I'd bet that Roger might have been a bit embarrassed to admit that he'd co-written a few songs and maybe he just wanted to get them out into the world. Bit of a song called Satin and Lace which is one of Roger's two co-writes here. And while it's every bit the AM gold that it sounds to be, when judged along those lines there's really not much that one could say against the track. And ditto for the closing song known as Doing It All Again which is so relatively understated that it actually, it actually became the most charming tune here for me. Geez, I have really gone all over the place here, haven't I? (laughs) One second I'm not sure why the album was made, one second I want to turn it off and play a Who record instead, and the next, I'm making justifications for it. Okay, one of the boys, you got me here. You weren't a major commercial or artistic success, but you kept me engaged and thinking for 40 minutes, and that's better than some supposed classics have done for this host. So I guess that's all you need right there. One of the Boys is most interesting in a cerebral way, though it's not an intellectually challenging album by pretty much any stretch. It's another case of everyone hitting the right notes, but very little genuinely sticking with you for too long. Sometimes having famous friends just isn't enough. But that said, with as many records as Roger had appeared on the cover of, he's going to find a direction he's happy with soon. Right? Alright, right, friends, that's going to do it for this episode of Discography. We'll be back next week with, hey, we're going to pick up right where we left off. We just covered Roger Daltrey's One of the Boys. The next stop is Pete Townsend and Ronnie Lane's duo album, Rough Mix. There's so much out there that you could be paying attention to, but you're here with me and Consequence Podcast Network on Discography discography is a production of the consequence podcast network it's produced recorded etc in orlando florida right here in mark with a c's home studio because occasionally i talk about myself in third person and i apologize immediately afterward i'm so sorry that i did that and also just in case you feel like blowing up my twitter because i made a paul is dead joke i'd like to emphasize that's a joke all right thank you so much for tuning in this week And I'm having a really good time doing this with you all. I hope you're having a great time, too. Please tell everybody you know about the podcast. Especially if you got good things to say about it. Because seriously, oh my god, the work that this season took. Oh, it just nearly destroyed me. Oh, you can't even imagine. I'm not going to bellyache any further. I'm happy, and I hope you're happy, too. We've got a message from the Answer Man. And that message is that some of our background music, like what you're hearing right now behind us, that's made by Chris Abriski. You can find out more about him at ChrisAbriski.com. He does most of the ambient backing music that you hear on discography. And uh, some of the more upbeat, beat driven stuff, that's done by Jordan McKenna, who you can find at SoundCloud.com. Just search for Jordan McKenna, I'm sure it's going to come up for you. All right, that being said, I think we're in a good place this week. Can't wait to kick off next week with you. Thanks so much in advance. Thank you for today. Thank you for the future. Thank you for the past. And thank you to The Who for making such an amazing saga. I'll see you next time, my friends.
3: Consequence Podcast Network.